right, if you would, would you take out your Bible and join me? If you didn't bring a Bible, take the one out in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that is your Bible. Um, we want to give it to you. I mean that sincerely. Every Bible in this building is available. If you don't have one, we would be privileged to be able to give it to you as our gift to you this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Um, we'll actually start out a little bit before the reading today, and because it is a little bit longer of a reading, and because it reads more like a story, I want to put your mind kind of maybe into like story time this morning, okay? Um, instead of reading it at the beginning like we normally do, we're going to read through it page by page and talk about it as we go. We're in the story of Abraham and Sarah, and the miraculous birth of their son, Isaac. And, and I, I was thinking about this story, and it reminded me of a saying, and, and I'll spend some time explaining as we go why it reminded me of this saying, but you've probably heard it before. Shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. How many of you have heard that saying in some way, shape, or form? It's inspiring, right? And so I was wondering, where did it come from? And I found one of the earliest um, places that you find it is from an author who is a Protestant minister from New York. His name is Norman Vincent Pearl. And he was born the same year that St. John's Lutheran Church was founded, 1898. He passed away in 1993. And he was known throughout his life and his ministry for his message on the power of positive thinking. Has, has anybody here read the book, The Power of positive thinking? Okay, some of you have. I'm not surprised that Steve has. That is your life, right? Positive thinking. And it was written back in 1952, still a very popular book today. And, and I haven't read the book, so those of you who have, you'll have to tell me a little bit about it. But I have quoted that phrase many times, and I've heard it quoted to me. And I've wondered over the years, what if the moon is where you wanted to be? Right? Like, I mean, it's a sentimental phrase, but what we learned about space during Pearl's life is that if you miss the moon, what actually happens is you end up going into a bunch of nothing. Apollo 11 launched on July 16, 1969, and something tells me that the astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins would not have been very comforted by that phrase if their spacecraft missed the moon and got the stars. It might make sense to put that on a post-it note to encourage you at work at your desk, but if NASA Mission Control had a poster with that phrase on it, you might wonder where they're going and have some questions about what's motivating them. Now, I don't mean to be a downer, but sometimes... What we're really hoping for really does have no alternative, doesn't it? Anything less is going to feel like a failure, a shortcoming, unfinished business. And the further you get into the stars, the more impossible it starts to feel that you're going to ever get back to the moon. And I start there because that is where we find ourselves in the story that we're about to read. Today is week two in our journey that we're going through the book of Genesis. It's actually a bigger part of a bigger journey. We started just last week, so you're getting right into the beginning of it. We're calling it the big picture. And we're taking a journey 
through the big picture of the Bible. We're at the very beginning of it, and by May, we're going to be towards the end of it to get an idea of the big picture of the story of God. Because, frankly, many of us don't know how it all connects. We don't know what the big picture is in the story of God and the story of our own lives and how it fits within it. And if you don't know that, then it's easy to find yourself settling for the stars when God has something even greater in store for you than you can imagine, maybe even greater than the moon. And if there was ever an example of this, it is found in our reading today. Bring you up to speed if you weren't here last week. Last Sunday we started at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And since nine months isn't enough time to be able to go through everything in Scripture, it would take us much longer than that, we're going to have to kind of skip ahead. And so I was envisioning, like imagining that we're like watching a DVD and we're skipping chapters. And then I thought, well, most of us do Netflix now. Have you not? Do you not agree with me that we would, I would like to go back to the chapters that we had on DVDs because you fast forward and it always goes too far forward. Too far. Does anybody else feel like we've taken a step backwards that way? That has nothing to do with my sermon. I just, I, I just, this is something I was thinking. So just imagine that we're chaptering through the DVD of God's story. And so we've skipped chapter three, original sin and the serpent and the tree and the fruit that was good to eat, but ultimately brought into the created world this thing we call sin. And the definition of sin that we can use at this particular moment is that sin is the reason we don't get the moon or the stars. Before sin, we were made to live forever in the garden with God and with one another. We were made to care for it. We were made to to be fruitful and multiply, not just creation, but humanity itself. It's actually the very first thing God tells the very first couple that they are blessed to do in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and increase in number. And yet, by the time we get to Abraham and Sarah, we're not even at the end of the first book of the Bible. The brokenness of our world has made that the one thing they can't have. Abraham and Sarah can't have a baby. And what makes that infinitely worse is God himself told Abraham back in Genesis 15.5, look up at the sky and count the, say it with me, Stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now just as an aside, I just want to name the part that infertility plays in this particular story. I was listening to a scholar this week, and she was talking about hearing this story in worship at the same time that she and her husband had just recently experienced a miscarriage. And what brought her comfort that day, because it was so painful to hear this story, was nothing that was said that was biblical or theological. She said what brought her comfort was the person speaking in worship that particular day was another woman. And she started by sharing her own experience with infertility and miscarriages. And what brought this woman sitting in the pews comfort was the simple fact that she knew that she's not alone. 
And so I just, I want to say that because I know that, that she's not alone and neither are you. And that for many, many, many people, this is a personal story. And God isn't going to answer all of our questions around that particular topic. And this isn't a blanket promise of the same outcome. But I want to show you the overarching promise that it is. God promised Abraham and his wife that they would have a child, not only to grow their family, but more importantly than that, that those descendants would become a nation. And that nation is Israel. And that nation would bring into the world the big picture a man by the name of Jesus. Who isn't just a man, but is also fully God. God sent his son into the world to invite all people back to God, back to the garden. In essence, to undo Everything sin has done, including infertility and death and everything else that we come up against. That is the overarching story. So keep watching. Keep looking for the hope. And in this particular story, we're going to see hope, but there's just one problem we have to get over first. There's actually multiple problems, but the first one is pretty significant. Not only has this couple not been able to conceive a child, but they're also old. And I'm not trying to be rude here. It says it in the Bible. They're old. They're really old. That's what it says. Even Sarah says it about her husband. They're so old, they've been collecting Social Security for decades. They've been drawing from their 401k without penalty for a long time. Their, their, their financial advisor is saying, I don't know how much longer you have. They have been eligible for the senior discounts for as long as they can remember. And I know but Babies Are Us isn't around anymore, but I'm pretty sure Babies Are Us never took an AARP card and gave you 10% off a stroller because you had that, and yet that's where they were. And so when they were told that they're going to have a child after all these years, you wouldn't blame them, would you, for thinking that if that hope is the moon, they've missed it, and they've missed the stars as well. And so what did they do? Well, they did what most of us do, and we don't see a path to what God has said as our purpose and our future. They got impatient. They took matters into their own hands. And, and if you look at one chapter after this promise is made of the stars, verse 16, Abraham has a child with his wife's maidservant. The story gets serious. Verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, these are their names before God changed them, bore him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah had said. I don't think I need to exegete the text to point out the problem here, do I? <laughs> This is not going to go very well. The Lord has made a promise of geriatric wonder and the clock is ticking literally and figuratively. It has not yet happened in their timing. And so they did what frankly you do and what I do all of the time when we think to ourselves, God's plans are crazy. 
His promise for us doesn't make sense. I don't trust him. They took matters into their own hands. See, this is why it's okay that we skip through Genesis chapter 3 because we see it play out over and over and over again. People will say the first three chapters of Genesis tell you the whole story of Scripture. You've got in Genesis 3 the garden and the serpent and the fruit. This is really the same thing playing out over and over again. It's saying to God, I know you promised to do this. And so I'm going to go do that. <laughs> or I know you said that, that you would take care of this, but I don't trust you, and so I'm going to try to take care of that myself. Sin is all a matter of where you put your trust. And Abraham and Sarah have put them, their trust in themselves. And you can't blame them because we do the same thing all the time. And it's where we see another layer of sin in the human story enter into their picture. It's already entered into the picture, but it's the layer of shame. It's the layer of guilt. It's the layer of mistakes. And we do this all the time too, right? We hear God's wonderful promises for us. That, that God loves us. That God has a purpose for us. That God forgives us. And then we do something by taking matters into our own hands and we know it's wrong, and we know we shouldn't have done it. We didn't trust God. And so what do we do? We place the fig leaf over ourselves. We hide in shame, thinking there's no way that the promises of God could possibly still be good after what I did. This is instinctive. And I saw it just this week. If you follow my wife, Alyssa, and I, if you're friends with us on Facebook, you saw this already. This is a little bit of review, but I was sitting at home, or I was, I'm sit, sitting at church, and, and Alyssa, my wife, was at home with our two-year-old, Grayson, and she sent me this picture of Grayson hiding in the, in the living room with the bag of Fritos. He's two. He's got a lot of allergies, and so this is something we have just recently introduced to him, and we have found not only is he not allergic to it, but he loves it. <laughs> and so he found the bag, and he hid in the living room, and it made me think of Genesis 3. This is what I wrote when I posted this. He answered, I heard you in the kitchen, and I was afraid because I was eating Fritos. And so I hid. I mean, it's, it's a paraphrase, but you get the idea. You can see the guilt. Pammy, if you can go back to the picture. You can see the guilt on his face, can't you? Like, it's all right there. He's busted. But at two years old, at only two years old, this moment is just a moment. You know that. That's why you're laughing. If you ask him in church today, if you see him come in a little bit later, he won't know the difference. He doesn't remember that. It's gone. It's finished. It's why we laugh. Unfortunately, though, he's probably going to follow the same trajectory I have. Our mistakes get worse than eating too many Fritos and hiding from your mom. Now, I've done that, too. I've eaten too many Fritos and hidden from Alyssa as well. But... It gets worse, doesn't it? That's also not in my sermon. <laughs> and so you have Abraham and Sarah, right? Not only have they come up against infertility, but now they've got infidelity baked into their story. And in Genesis 17, 17, when God tells Abraham that he and his wife Sarah are still going to have a child, after all of that, he responds this way. Abraham falls face down and he laughs. And he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 
90. They have already taken matters into their own hands. They have already thought that God's promises are too crazy. They already believe that they have fallen beyond God's willingness to do what he said he would do from the very beginning. And God says to them in a nutshell, I'm still going to do it. My promise is still good. I am still going to do what I said. And Abraham laughs. He laughs. Have you ever laughed at God's plan for your life? Maybe you haven't gotten such an articulate understanding of what God is going to do. Have you ever looked back at God's plan on your life? And you laugh and go, I have no idea how that happened. It's the same thing. We've experienced this in some way, shape, or form as well. And if you haven't, then you're probably not paying attention because God is doing this all the time. Things in our lives that on the outside look utterly ridiculous. And that is the story we have here. And so fast forward in our reading to Genesis 18. This is our actual reading, but I wanted you to see where we were leading up to. There's three men that show up at Abraham's door, and it says this, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, and while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. The Lord and his angels appeared physically to 100-year-old Abraham. What do you do? Put yourself in his shoes. You have been made an incredible, miraculous promise by God himself. You've messed it up. You've taken matters into your own hands. And and the thought of God still doing what God said he's going to do makes you laugh. You've messed up. You've doubted God's promises. You're starting to lose your faith. What do you do? You worship. You worship. That's what Abraham does. He worships. Verse 3, he said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. He worshipped. And I just want to get up on a soapbox for a minute. There's a big problem in the church. And I used to say there's a big problem in the church today. But I've been in the church long enough that I don't think it's just today. I think we've had this problem since the beginning of the church itself. And it's that somehow we have gotten this idea that you can only come here if you're good enough. You ever thought that before? That you're only able to come here if you're good enough. And as a pastor, I've watched it now for years. People falling away from the church because of their guilt and their shame and their mistakes. And they've got big questions and big doubts. And I look at the story of Abraham. And he is the same thing and he does the opposite He worships the Lord in the midst of all of that. He bows down. He serves the Lord because he's guilty. 
And because he has shame, and because he's filled with questions and doubts, and the answer for you is that when you're like him, you should do the same thing as well. The church should be full of people who feel as if they have somehow fallen beyond the point of no return. That's what we should be. These are the people, people who have doubts and questions and are at the end of their rope should be the people crawling over the threshold to be in worship each and every week. It reminds me of a phrase, I've shared this many times, by Dallas Willard. He said, if you want to know God's address, it's at the end of your rope. If you want to know God's address, it's at the end of your rope. And the misconception is that somehow you got to have it all together to come before God. And if you walk away from church this morning with one thing, I hope it is that you don't. (laughs) Because God is the one that has it all together. God is the one who has it all together. That's what we believe. If you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, and you're wondering if you want to be a Christian, that's what Christians believe. God is the one that has it all together, and that's why we come before him when we don't, because he does. And so we come before him. King David did this in Psalm 61. He cries out to God, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you. Not from the beginning, not from his strength. This is not a psalm of triumph and praise. It's a psalm of lament. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you, God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. The reason that we come before God when we're weak And we've made mistakes and we've fallen short and we're guilty and we're filled with shame and we're doubting is because it is in that moment that we need God the most. And I get passionate about this because how often do those of us here in church who know this, I see you nodding, you get it, And yet, as the church at large, how often do we give the people outside these four walls the impression that they're not good enough to enter? Have you heard that before? We're in a post-Christian environment right now. There's no social pressure in the United States of America to come to church or to be a Christian or to be anything. And they're not going to come if they think that they're not good enough to enter. And it's even worse when you realize that that isn't the Christian message at all. Where does that come from? I will tell you, and you will see it when we go through the big picture, that message that you have to be good enough to enter this place is nowhere in the pages of this book. This book book says the opposite. It says we've all fallen short. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only difference between us in this place and those outside of this place is we are the ones who have come here to worship the one who is good, not because we are good, but because he is good. And the good news is that he sent Jesus to make us good again too. We are here because we are just like everybody else. 
We're beat down by our questions and our doubts and our guilt and our shame and our mistakes. But we come here to find shelter and refuge. We worship the one who did live the perfect life and died the perfect death and poured over us his blood to take away our guilt and our shame and give us that life as well. It's called grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Show of hands, how many of you need one of those gifts this morning? I'm glad you're here. But you'll never experience any of them if you hide from God when you need him the most. If you want to know God's address, he lives at the end of your rope. And so Abraham is at the end of his rope, right? If there was ever a definition, he is at the end of his rope and he serves and he worships these three men, the Lord himself. The story continues and says, he says, where is your wife, Sarah? They asked Abraham. And she says, they're in the tent. And one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And you can't help but wonder, he's got to be thinking, wait a minute, didn't we mess that up a thousand times already? Is that still going to actually happen? I thought we missed the moon and the stars. I thought we were hopeless. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. See, I told you the Bible says it, not me. The Bible says it. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing, so Sarah laughed. To herself, as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord, the husband, is old, will I now have this pleasure? When life is hard for me, I don't know about you, sometimes I laugh. You do that? Does anybody do that when life is just so heavy, you just can't help but laugh? It's Sometimes you even have to apologize, right? And say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make light of this. I just, it's my coping mechanism. If I don't laugh, I'll cry. Have you ever, have you ever actually felt that way? I think that's what's going on here. And so Sarah laughs, just like Abraham laughed earlier. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you. It's a rhetorical question. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But the Lord said, yes, you did. I'm adding inflection that I think is actually in the original text. That's what it is. It is not a slap on the wrist. It is a back and forth. You laughed. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. And it was in that moment of shame and guilt and doubt and questions that Sarah lied in the face of the Lord. And I don't know the exact definition of getting to the end of your rope, but lying in the face of God and laughing at what he just told you has got to be really close, right? I think it's a pretty good definition. Sarah reached the end of her rope. And thanks be to God, because that's where God lives. God lives at the end of the rope. And that day was the beginning of her redemption and ours. You know how I know? Because nine months later, she would laugh again. And she would name a little boy, Laughter. 
This time, laughter of joy. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, The Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac, which means laughter, was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Why? Because they're going to know the answer to the question, is there anything too hard for God? And the answer is no, there's not. And so next time you miss the moon, don't settle for the stars. It may sound cheesy, but God wants to give you the sun. Let's watch. Like the wind, unseen but present, moving and felt. Like the seasons, changing at exactly the right time. Like the pull of gravity that keeps me firmly planted to the ground beneath my feet. Your faithfulness. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Immovable, unshakable. Your love is steadfast and you keep every one of your promises. You will never leave and you never forsake the ones you love. You finish everything you start and never have you spoken a word in vain. As undeniable as the sun, rising day in and day out without fail, and just as certain as the setting of that same sun, you 